My name is Dr. Ruth Mary Allen, and this is my podcast, Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain. Our world has become a minefield for our children to get the best out of their brain and whole body health, which is why I founded the Wellbeing Warrior Academy to help them navigate this minefield effectively. Right now, if you go to www.wellbeingwarrioracademy.com and use the code PODCAST10, you can get 10% off all programs. That's www.wellbeingwarrioracademy.com and use the code PODCAST10 at checkout. Now, let's get back to this week's episode of Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain. Welcome to the show, Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain. I am really looking forward to the conversation with the amazing Henry Dimbleby. Welcome to the show, Henry. Good evening, Dr. Ruth. Very nice to be here. It is so nice to catch up with you because I know we've had this scheduled in for quite some time. And uh, I first met you, I believe, at the uh, Integrated Personalised Medicine Conference back in June last year when you you gave a talk on the food, national food strategy um, quite some time ago, back in June. And um, it was a really inspiring talk and I couldn't wait to learn more about what you had to say about the chronic state of our food system. And I'm so pleased that you've brought it together in, in your new book, Ravenous, um, which we're going to talk talk about today. So for those that don't know, Henry, um, he is the author of Ravenous, How to Get Ourselves and Our Planet Into Shape, which is published recently this month, March 2023, which is an analysis of the food system, how it's malfunctioning and what to do about it, which really builds on your work um, that you did on the independent national food strategy which was described by Prue Leith as the best government document that's ever come out. Uh, he's also the co-founder and former CEO of Leon Restaurants. He co-founded the Sustainable Restaurant Association and the charity Chefs in Schools, which brings restaurant chefs into the school's kitchens, which I think is so important. And I also know that you were the found, you co-authored the, food, the school food plan in 2013, which was a blueprint for the government setting out the actions to transform what children eat in schools and how they learn about food. And um, being a parent myself, I can't um, I can't tell you how grateful I am that you've done that piece of work. And I wish it's I wish it could migrate into the um, nurseries as well, which which is which I hope we can have a little bit of a conversation today today about because um, I always find it rather shocking. Um, when I went to took my daughter to nursery, that they thought that crackers uh, was an appropriate breakfast uh, food, um, which is crackers in my my world. So I'd love to talk about everything to do with the food system, what we can do about it, what the problems are, and how importantly um, we can fix it. Well, there's there's a there's a long way to go, but there is hope. Nurseries, actually, we can talk about it later. But nurseries are. A, a new focus of ours at the moment. I've got a charity that works in schools trying to uh, improve the food in them, as you said, and nurseries are, we're not there and we're quite keen to be there at some point. No, and I think it's really important because, you know, we can teach children really early about the importance of food. And I think the earlier we start, the better, that we give that, them that 
um, really important foundation for what food helps their brain and what or, or, and body and what food hurts it. Um, and I, you know, obviously having a daughter myself, Lily, who's four, is just about to go to school. It's really easy for me, and I'm, thank God I've I've done the learning because I know there's many parents out there that that haven't been, you know, haven't done the learning themselves and they don't know where to look. Is to teach my daughter about the soldiers in her gut. Um, and that's the big focus I take. And we talk about the good soldiers and the bad soldiers and what types of food feed feed the soldiers in the gut and how to make sure that they, they stay strong and healthy. So well, you're you're at the you're at the, the sweet point at the moment where they will still eat what you provide them. So mine are fifteen, about to be thirteen at the weekend and uh, and ten, and you inevitably go through waves with children. So the the key is not to give up, not to beat yourself up about it, but just to continue making sure that the food that they see in your house is the food that will, as you say, feed both their body and their brain. Yeah, and, and I think it's so important. And before we dive into your journey, um, I'd love to know what you are passionate about in life right now. So funnily enough, uh, and this kind of fits with, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of, you know, your brain health journey. The thing that I have, I'm now 52, and, I, and I'm, I'm kind of quite a hyperactive person. I'm constantly starting things up. I'm constantly on the go. And the thing that I have really worked on over the last eight years is being able to be present and particularly to be able to relax. So I used to be the kind of person who, when I was sitting on a bench next to my wife, looking at a beautiful view, I was making lists. I was you know, just can't, my mind was somewhere else. I can so relate. Uh, um, and, uh, uh, you know, and just doing things like, like enjoying playing cricket on a beach with my children or just being there. And I think I've actually become quite good at it. I used to be really bad at it. In fact, I used to almost get, it almost used to kind of stress me out, the idea that I wasn't pushing at something. I wasn't trying to move something. And I think I'm getting better at that. And I'm really enjoying it. I'm really enjoying just hanging out with the children and enjoying not doing things, or at least not feeling you have to, you know, make an impact on the world at all, at all moments of the day or night do you know I think that's so important I can really relate to it myself is I'm I'm very hyperactive I really struggled to sit still and watch a movie <laughs> I want to be up and doing things and and I know just as you said is that you know you can have a thousand thoughts whizzing through your head when you're actually trying to be present and you're not present at all and my, my husband might say come on Ruth <laughs> come back yeah. into the room well the and, other and thing it's I so think... important isn't it to slow down no, and also the other thing that, you know, I think part of that is learning that your brain works in the background to solve, uh, to solve problems and being comfortable to let it be there. I don't know, you know, you're probably at the stage where you have uh, made oobleck with your daughter, which is when you get cornstarch and you mix it with water. And if you move your hand slowly through it, it acts like a fluid. But if you move your hand fast, it acts like a solid. Oh, and I yeah. think the brain is like that. You have to realize sometimes that actively thinking about things is going to be counterproductive and you have to enjoy something else. And secretly in the background, 
your brain will be working away on the answer and it'll just appear to you sometimes. I, I absolutely agree. And often a sleep, you know, sleeping is a really good solution or going for a walk in nature can be really helpful to allow your brain to do that processing um, in the background to come up with a solution that subconsciously it's working on. I, yes. I find swimming a, a really good um, activity or running indeed. Um, yeah, I mean, there, those are both interesting activities. You know, there, there's that wonderful book by was Daniel Kahneman, the, the Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. Oh, yeah. He, he talks about those two mechanisms and he points out that actually our brains, you know, a lot of our brains consciously are working at, at, at capacity quite a lot of the time. And he points out that when you're walking and you want to do something complicated, you have to stop. Uh, you actually find yourself stopping and doing a sum or having a difficult conversation with someone. And uh, just those very simple flow activities are very good at pushing the conscious out of your mind because you have to focus on putting one foot in front of the other. Do you know what I found really, I know we're going a bit off topic, but do you know what I found really helpful is that, that sometimes just telling myself things when I go running, like I might say well-being warrior is the, the classic thing I'll say to myself. I actually run faster because <laughs> I'm getting rid of the negativity that is coming to the forefront of my mind and replacing it with positive, positive words. And it, it doesn't have to be much. It just needs to be two or three words. And, it, and, and if I just repeat it over and over or singing a song is another good thing. Singing your favorite song whilst you're cycling or running actually makes me go faster because I'm not letting those negative intrusive thoughts come into my mind. Yeah, well, I, I, I've run a couple of marathons and, and I usually just fix it. Random phrases would just go around in my, my mind again and again and again. Didn't really matter, but just, you know. As long as you don't think about how painful it is, you're fine. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and uh, talk, talking about pain, um, obviously we're going to dive into the pain that we're experiencing as a nation in the context of our health, um, from both the, the, the health of ourselves, the health of the planet, and the health of the, the food system in general. Um, but before we dive into that, what what is optimal brain health mean for you, for you personally? in the context of your journey that you've been on? I think that um, what I've come to try to do is to recognize when I am agitated mm -hmm. because you make bad decisions when you're agitated. When you start up a business, and we had a, Leon was a retail business, you're constantly being hit by feedback and, you know, you'd pick up a, feedback card in the restaurant it would say something uh you know they didn't like the music or they didn't like this and your brain is kind of cycling in a constant frenzy of anxiety and as a business grows if you're lucky enough to be successful those little bits of feedback become a hurricane and for me good mental health is when you if you realize that you're triggered you realize that you're not you're in an agitated state of mind. And you might be thinking of texting someone in anger or ringing someone up or doing something. Just observing that and letting it kind of evaporate off, letting it go and realizing that you're in an agitated state and waiting until you are less agitated, almost observing the agitation. And then it, yeah. and then it goes away. And that for me is, you know, that state where you are, free from agitation 
it doesn't matter whether you are uh, still, you know, very worried about something or whatever. If you can get into a non-agitated state, then you can you can deal with it. So for me, it is being conscious. Good mental health is being conscious of the state that your your mind is in at any one time, and then you'll make better decisions. Did you know I love that? And it, if I reflect back on your previous comment in kind in kind of understanding flow, uh, when you've got a liquid such as corn corn flour and water put together, is agitation is like moving your finger around as fast as you can, but actually you're not going anywhere because you're creating a mass that that doesn't isn't conducive to 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 moving forward. It, it can be very difficult, can't it, to, exactly. to make progress? Exactly. Whereas if you just calm, if you just observe the fact that your fingers agitated and in this flow of liquid, and just calm it down, then you can move it, move it through it quite quite easily and quickly, and get to get get through the problem or whatever the uh, situation is by by just calming your mind. I like to think of it like we're all on an ocean of emotion. And and you know when you're in an agitated emotion, um, the waves are bobbing you everywhere. So you just have to have to navigate gently. There's no point fighting it. You just you just have to navigate through it gently. Yeah, that's spot on. That. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Um, so diving into your story because I was reading your your history of, of of obviously we both started off as physicists. You did physics and philosophy, and I did physics and German. But you went on quite a quite an interesting journey to get you to where you are today. I'm really curious to understand how that journey evolved that first of all led you into from physics to becoming a commie chef to to now writing the National Food Strategy and uh, and this amazing book Ravenous. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's really, uh, so I was discussing this the other day. Funnily enough, my career has always felt like a... Um, a bit of a random walk. I was always, you know, in in like like someone you know going on a, a pub crawl. I was always in one bar until I wanted to leave that bar because it looked like there was a more fun bar somewhere else. And I kind of stumbled from job to job, just really following what I felt at the time I wanted to do without a plan. Um, but funny enough, looking back at it, it has all kind of come you know this book almost is a reflection of what I've done over the over that you know those 30 years or so so I started as you said doing physics and philosophy I then uh I didn't realize that the milk there's a thing called a milk brand where you go at university and everyone goes to try and get jobs yeah. I didn't realize that I kind of missed that I was too busy playing poker and bridge um <laughs> and uh and so I missed that and then I met a chef a guy called Bruno Lube, amazing Michelin star chef. And I used to go before my finals to uh, to work with him just for fun, to, you know, relieve a bit of stress. Um, and then he offered me a job, so I was a commie chef at his restaurant. Then I thought, I, we, had, we had a, there was a kind of local newspaper that was a family business down in Richmond. And I thought I'd better learn about newspapers. So I, I went and became a journalist, wasn't very good at it for a bit. <laughs> and then I thought I'd better learn about business. So I became a management consultant. And then I thought, well, actually, I'm not really interested in business for business sake. I really like food. And yeah. and we set up Leon, me and John. And then kind of... And it was through... really, I want to pause you on the Leon bit because I think this is really important because you kind of set it up 
as an alternative to fast food, healthy food that was fast. Yes, as good food. So, so yeah. we were, we were, we were, uh, we were wandering to and from Newbury, where our client was, and you couldn't get anything that was good to eat. It was either chiller cabinets full of brightly lit neon lit sandwiches or delicious fried chicken that made you feel terrible afterwards. And so Leon was a very selfish business. I, I, I was out in Japan and John and I had been talking about, could we get better food? And I rang John up from Japan and said, look, I'm going to leave. I want to go and set up that business. And he said, well, I'm coming with you. I'm going to leave too. But it was very, what was interesting about that was it was very, as I said, selfish. It was just about getting food that the customer could eat that would make them feel good and they could get it on the go. But people assumed that we were doing all sorts of other different things. So they assumed because of the way we spoke, because of the way our packaging looked, that we were organic, that we were fully sustainable, that we, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that kind of ignited, we, we were struggling just to- You took to, seven years, wasn't it? Just to Yeah, we were struggling. Profit. We were struggling to make money. The idea of having to deal with sustainability at the same time was just a nightmare. And then a friend of mine, a guy called Mark Sainsbury, was having, he, he uh, had set up a restaurant called Morrow in, in London, and he was having similar problems. And he said, will you help me set up this not-for-profit sustainable restaurant association to, um, to, to help people like you and me become sustainable when they've got a million other things on their minds? Yeah. And so we, we, we did that, and we kind of helped restaurants, including ourselves, prioritize what they needed to do. And then there was a kind of another random thing of I, I, I met the politician Michael Gove okay. uh, at someone's house who was education secretary at the time. And he was being smashed over the head by, with a large baseball bat by Jamie Oliver at the time. This was back in 2013 because Jamie th thought he was, you know, uh, not doing enough on school food. Mm -hmm. And we talked about that for quite a while and then he rang me up and said but I'd like to do some work on school food so that was the first government review I'd done and that led to things like universal infant free school meals which you're about to find out about because your daughter is about to be eligible for them that was part of what came out of that review and cooking yeah. on the curriculum and various other things and then then again when he was in DEFRA he asked me to do this work on the national food strategy how do you create a food system that is uh, both Feed makes enough food, but also restores biodiversity, doesn't make us ill, and mm -hmm. sequesters carbon. How do you solve that problem? And that is what that is what the food strategy was, which we turned into the book. But if I look mm -hmm. back now, you know, that physics and philosophy, the kind of left-hand, right-hand brain thing going on and trying to understand how things work, but also liking the kind of poetry of things, and then working in a restaurant and then being a journalist, trying to work out how to write and then being a consultant, you know, trying to understand things again. It all kind of, although it felt like a, a drunken stagger at the time, actually you can, you can make up a narrative uh, that, that, that kind of makes sense. That makes sense. And actually, funny enough, um, there was a friend of mine, uh, Rowley, who said to me that day, he said, um, he said, Henry, you know, you've said some things that have really stuck with me in, in, in my time as like real words of wisdom. And I was like, oh, really? Oh, 
great. I was like, yeah, ooh, what was the best one? You know, seeing and he said, Well, the most significant thing you've ever said to me is stuff leads to stuff. <laughs> I was like, that's a bit disappointing. <laughs> if that's the best, if that's good, I'm not sure that's gonna make it into any aphorism books. But actually, I think funnily enough, there is a f- obvious an obvious but also slightly deeper truth to that, which is whatever you move towards does open all sorts of different doors, good and bad, mm. and close up close others. And I think that our ability to our ability to plan a career or to kind of it, it is quite limited. You're all there's so much that is about luck, that is about timing, that is about, you know, just being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. But I do think if you're following what fundamentally interests you, you will at least be swimming in the right water. You'll be, you know, whatever whatever the analogy is, you'll be, you know, fishing in the right area. So yes. it was a kind of random walk, but also it's not surprising that it led to to to, to to what it led to. And the idea of the book is exactly that. It's to, it's to, it's to speak in a populist way. No one's going to read a government report. So the no, it's, is- no it is, it, I, I did start reading it and I was super grateful that you gave me the book to read because it kind of makes it digestible. <laughs> yeah, so the idea is to make it as exciting as a thriller, but also, because you can't change. You have to, you know, there's a, there's, um, there's a, 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 an economist who we quote in the book called W.E. Denning who said, uh, a bad system will beat a good person every time. And you can't change a bad system unless you know how it works. Yeah. So really, writing something that is as simple and compelling as possible that explains why the food system is both killing us and destroying the planet, I felt was the best way that I could kind of take that work from the food strategy on and try and make things a little bit better. Yeah, and I'd, I'd love to dive into some of that, um, uh, some of the statistics that I've pulled out from your book, actually, which I just found shocking. And I'm really curious to explore how we actually shift the statistics into one that's favourable for our health and favourable for the planet. Uh, and not we're not in a... It, it kind of feels to me like, from a brain health perspective, we have become got to an evolutionary pinnacle and we're now in a devolution because our brains are not helping us sustain ourselves or the planet they're actually hurting us and the planet at the same time and we've kind of it's kind of turned into this horrible vicious cycle and I think the only way we can really fix it is if we bash our brain you know get all of our brains together not physically bash them but put brains together and use our brains to help help ourselves rather than hurt ourselves. So let me just dive into some of the amazing uh, stats that you mentioned is junk food or processed food is three times cheaper per calorie. But obviously that doesn't include the cost, uh, the, the cost of the health of the individuals. That's just the pure, pure initial cost. Um, over 80% of processed food uh, sold in the UK is unhealthy which is phenomenal. And, and you mentioned in 1950, less than 1% of people were clinically obese, which is a BMI of 30 or more. And today that's 28%. Um, and we're now in a, an obesity epidemic. Um, 
1980, we had 57% average household budget was spent on fresh ingredients. That's now down to 35%, which is a huge shift. Um, and we currently get 55% of our total calories from processed food. So I think there is a fantastic and, and, uh, um, parallel here with mental health. Mm. So what the, 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 what most people think is going on with their diet and their physical health is uh, they think that it is their fault. They think they are weak. They have mm -hmm. lost willpower. And if they are sick, they have themselves to blame. And that is quantitatively the case. People, that is the, the, that is the paradigm that most people have about how the food system works. And we talk about what, what I call the junk food cycle. Mm. And basically what we say is a bit like mental health. So people's poor mental health is a perfectly reasonable reaction to the world in which they live. Uh, our evolution has not equipped us well mentally to deal with the amount of input that our brains are having. And anyone who is maintaining even a modicum of mental health is doing really well. You know, they should, we should not be surprised that our mental health is struggling. Likewise, if you look at our physical health and our diet, mm. as you said, 1% of people were obese in 1950, 28% are obese now. We haven't changed. The food system has changed. And yeah. that is the problem. And very, specific, very explicitly, our appetite, first of all, you have to realize it's a really powerful thing. So we use the example in the book of, the uh, the Chilean rugby players who crashed in the Andes yeah. and in order to survive, uh, ate their friend, the bodies of their friends and families, starting with the flesh, then moving on to the lungs, the organs and the brains. You know, appetite will make you do extraordinary things. It is not a system that you want to go wrong. Uh, and, and specifically, it makes you seek out when you're not in full starvation mode, but normally it makes you seek out and rewards you to, for finding those foods that are highly calorie dense, that have a lot of sugar, salt, fat, uh, and you get highs, dopamine hits when you eat those foods. They taste good. They make you full less quickly. Uh, so you eat more of them. And the food companies, not because they are uh, evil, not because they wake up every morning thinking, how can we trick your children into eating lots of sugary food? How can we do that? but simply because that has been over time, the commercial incentive has spent more and more of their money developing and marketing these foods. We have eaten more, they've spent more, we've eaten more, they spent more, we have got sick. It is no surprise that there are 28 kinds of Kit Kat available, which is a true figure, available mm -hmm. in this country. It's because it is easier to sell those than it is to sell kale. And if those companies didn't do it, someone else would come in and do it. So the first thing, if you're going to fix this system, on the health side and the environmental side, slightly different, you have to acknowledge that there is a feedback loop, as you say, a vicious cycle. In this case, it's known as a, a reinforcing cycle or an amplifying cycle, where both sides amplify each other, and that you have to break that cycle if we're going to create a better food system. My my worry now is that. There are two sides to that cycle. Yeah. And my worry is that rather than try and create a better food system, 
we are going to try and drug our appetite. So we will, uh, we will just try and using these uh, medicate our way out out of yeah. it. So uh, exactly. So semaglutide, uh, the NHS, which is a very effective appetite suppressant drug, the NHS is looking at what would be the cost of medicating 12 million people, people's appetite. And I've got a friend who's on it. And she said to me, again, a, a, a really good analogy with what you're doing. She said, Henry, you know, it is a very depressing world. It's a stressful world out there. Taking antidepressant drugs is a rational response to that. In the same way, all my life I have been fighting with my weight and it has made me miserable. Taking this drug is a rational response to that and it has freed me up. And I absolutely think that for specific people in the same way that specific people's lives have been turned around by taking antidepressants, mm. for specific people, if you have been fighting food all your life and dealt and self-shaming and felt terrible about it, it well may well be that those kind of treatments will lengthen your life and make you feel better. Mm. But to deal with the system in that way is potentially, in my view, catastrophic for two reasons. One is that um, there will inevitably be tail effects when you, if you give new drugs to that many people. And if you get that, there's a risk they become, people get scared of them, don't want to take them. And then for the people for whom they would be really beneficial, they don't take them, which would be problematic. But also, I think, you know, if we've learned anything from systems theory over the, over time, it is that if you use a kind of one-stop simple intervention in a complex system, there will bound to be unexpected um, unexpected side effects. You'll cause other problems. So yeah. I'm really worried that that we're going down the only drug route, and that that's uh, that that is disastrous. I totally agree. And I think, you know, we, we've kind of got ourselves into this position anyway, in the context of, of mental health, we, we don't prescribe medicine in the context of food as medicine. So often telling people to eat more healthily and up their intake of vegetables and they, there's scientific evidence to show that, you know, you have, there's a linear correlation between the number of fruit and vegetables you eat and your level of happiness up to eight servings is we try and fix people with drug intervention and they become dependent on the drugs uh, sometimes. And, it, and I'm not saying I'm anti-drugs. I think it's important if we give people the right medication to get them over the hump, but that we address the root cause of the problem um, taking a, a functional integrated system approach, whether you call it functional medicine or or, or system centric approach to to address the root cause of the problem and any dependencies that we have associated with the root causes that's caused causing us a catastrophic health issue now and later. Yeah, and I think that the two issues are likely, we don't know yet because the science is just developing, but I think it's quite likely that the that the two issues will come even closer together. So at the moment, we know that for the ultra-processed food, we know that a large part of the there's a big genetic element, as there is with depression. Yeah. Uh, so between 40 and 70% of your propensity to put on weight is genetic. Uh, and we know that ultra-processed food has things like, it, it has ratios of sugar and salt to fat that don't exist in, in cooked food. We know that makes you want to eat more. 
But we also know that ultra-processed food at a microcellular, at a microchemical level, looks nothing like uh, food cooked from scratch. So a lasagna that is processed will have very different chemicals in it from one that is mm -hmm. unprocessed. And we know that that has an effect on our microbiome. So we yes. know that, for example, you have the healthiest microbiome if you have over 30, uh, over 30 different kinds of fruit and veg a week. Yeah. And we know that depression and we know that mood is linked to the microbiome and we know that depression is linked to inflammation. So uh, I think we're at a really exciting stage, actually, when the power of computing and the ability of computers to deal with big data is actually we're going to be able to work out at the moment. We don't understand the mechanisms. And, you know, someone was saying to me the other day. You know, the, the, the science, the microbiome is the Wild West, and it is the Wild West, all sorts of crazy stuff being, you know, uh, ascribed to it that we can't really say. But what we do know is a bit like, I mean, do you remember 10 years ago when we were being told that the, the junk DNA in our genes was just junk and only a tiny bit of our DNA worked? We now yes. know that's, that's not true. It's a lot of it is epigenetic and it's turned on and off. Yeah. I think we are at the, at the cusp of a whole new scientific revolution where big data is able to understand what is actually going on in some of these complex systems. And that, for me, is actually a, a, bit, of, a bit of hope because uh, just to, to solve these problems, you need to be able to understand in a complex way what's going on. And I think we need to start with understanding the person from a complex perspective as well because we have our, you know, we, we are ourselves a system and actually our interface of our skin, if you will, is the interface be between the outside world and the inside world that we have. And actually, we've kind of evolved from a series of viruses, bacteria, uh, uh, and microbes that populate. In, we have a greater population of microbes inside of us than there are people in the world. So yeah. when I, well, when And I, also, then we have more of other DNA than our own DNA inside of us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then but I think also it's very interesting that you talk about the inside and the outside world. So, um, you know, doing physics and philosophy, we did quite a lot of work on Descartes and on mind, body and central state materialism, where your thoughts, just your brain. And that boundary is going to be, I mean, it is already being blurred. So, for example... Uh, we know now in some cases that we post-rationalize actions, that our body acts them out before they've hit our brain. We yes. know that emotional states can exhibit themselves in the body. So the science is moving away from this kind of dualist idea that you have this, the kind of Cartesian seat of the brain. Uh, and I think that is going to be very interesting, you know, with the combination of that, with these kind of ancient, ancient, the fact that some of our biology, like the amygdala, as I said, is super ancient. We share the amygdala with worms, prehistoric worms, you know, and that is where our emotions come from. I think we are in for a really exciting, positively exciting uh, uh, kind of scientific phase. Funnily enough, I mean, it's, uh, I'm going on now, but in the book, I talk about uh, a wonderful book by Charles C. Mann called The Wizard and the Prophet. Mm -hmm. And he's talking, he, that's a book about the environment. And he says, basically, you've got these two tribes. You've got wizards who think we can solve everything with science, who think that the prophets, who are the kind of environmentalists, are holding back progress, that they are almost racist because 
most of the the poorest in the world are, are, are living in poor, uh, in countries where people aren't white, and by re rejecting science, we're being racist, and that the environment, the, you know, the profits are destroying everything. And the profits think that the wizards are tied up with global capitalism, that they are maybe sticking a sticking plaster over things, but in the long term, we're living beyond our means, and the wizards are going to kill us. And these two sides shouted at each other and shouted at each other. But what's quite interesting in this space at the moment is that through complex system theory, some of those views are coming together. So, for example, in the environmental space, uh, the prophets have been talking about soil management and mm -hmm. farming with nature for a long, long time. And the wizards who have been talking about you know, nonsense, it's about gene varieties, nitrogen fertilizer, pesticides, now have enough computational power to be able to realize that there are really interesting things going on in soil. And so farmers from both sides of the spectrum, of the spectrum are doing similar things, they're coming together. So I think that we may be, as I said, at a very exciting and positive place. And, five, and I think, five, you know, I, wanna, I, I want to jump in on that is because obviously from a soil perspective, our soil is eroding uh, enormously compared to what it was 50, 100 years ago, based on the, the number of fertilizers we're using and the topsoil is depleting significantly. We need to regenerate it so that we have the, uh, the microorganisms in our soil that really help the plants grow. Because I know that the, the actual quality of the fruit and veg that we now consume uh, in in the context of nutrient density is far less than it was 50 years ago before we started depleting the nutrients in our soil. I think it's five times for broccoli and eight times for, actually for oranges uh, in terms of the nutrient density. So even though we are being asked to eat more fruit and vegetables, we're actually not getting the nutrient levels that we would have done 50 years ago anyway. Uh, so we have a really quite a significant hurdle to get over to rebuild in the nutrients that we we know don't have to the abundance that we used to that our body needs. And I'd love to, uh, if we could dive into that a little bit um, in the context of addressing how you think we need to address the food system issue, taking a system-centric approach. And I know you, you outlined 15 steps um, that we can take in order to help improve the food system as a whole. And it starts off with, um, if I just go back to my notes, it, escaping the junk food cycle initially and the steps we need to start taking um, yeah. to, to move away from that. So I think, so it's worth just reflect on, on that nutrition thing. It hasn't been all bad. So, for example, we have now much more genetic diversity in tomatoes than we did 50 years ago because we have palates that like all sorts of different... A lot of tomatoes we see didn't exist 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. But there is fun... There's a trial in Rothamsted, which is an agricultural university, where they have kept the wheat from the same field since before the Second World War. And it's all kept in beautiful glass jars except during the second world war where you can go and visit it where they didn't have any glass jars so it's all tins of other stuff that they put the seeds in and measuring those they have definitely become nutrient depleted over time yield higher yield more calories fewer micronutrients 
But but it's actually there are just fundamentally there are just two things that we need to fix. I mean, there, there are I give fifteen actions, but that's fundamentally there are two things. There's the junk food cycle that I talked about. So if we are going to be healthy, we need to either change the commercial incentives of companies or change our appetite. And as I've just said, I'm not particularly keen on a on a population level of doing the latter. So we need to make it harder, make it easier for companies to make money elsewhere and stop all the money going into marketing stuff that, that hurts us. On the environmental side, there's a different feedback loop that's going wrong. We're missing what's called a balancing feedback loop. So we, after the Second World War, we thought that the world was going to starve. That was a genuine fear. There had, all the way through human history, we had, when the population had grown, we had simply dug up more land to feed people. And after the war, they thought that the population of the planet, due to improvements in sanitation, uh, was going to, and, and medicine was going to rise from 1.5 billion to 10 billion over the next 80 years. We're now at 8 billion, so they were right. And there simply wasn't going to be enough land to feed everyone if that was the case. So that was the concern. And a man called Norman Borlaug, a, a, a botanist from Idaho who'd grown up during the Great Depression, he'd seen starvation, he, you know, and food riots face on. And he decided that he needed to do something about it by increasing yields of plants. And he went to Mexico during the end of the war and he everyone thought he was mad and he kept breeding all these different plants together and he came up with this new form of wheat that was resistant to disease and very high yielding and that experiment was repeated in maize and in rice around the world and we now managed to feed uh many more people eight billion people rather than uh, 1.5 almost twice the number of calories off slightly less land than we did then. This is an incredible success story. But because we focused just on one element, just on yield, we, we talked about the risk of focusing on one thing. What we unwittingly did was the cost of that production was massively to destroy nature. And it is, it's impossible to overestimate, to exaggerate how much the food system is by far the biggest destroyer of nature. It's by far the biggest cause of the destruction of biodiversity. It's by far the biggest cause of deforestation. It's a big cause of water shortage, of freshwater pollution, of the devastation of life in the oceans. And with, with after energy, it's the second biggest cause of climate change. It, it creates between 20 and 30% of greenhouse gases worldwide. And that is because we haven't anywhere into the systems that measure success built nature. So, you know, yeah. it's not, it's not in wallets. It's not, in it's, GDP. Free. <laughs> it's not, a GDP. it's free. And, it, and it's worse than that. It's not just free. Partha Gupta, who's kind of a Cambridge economist estimates in, a, in an extraordinary report. He wrote for government, the, the, the economics of biodiversity that globally governments subsidize the destruction of nature to the tune of $500 billion a year in subsidies to fossil fuel companies, to fishing companies, to industrial agriculture. So it's not just free, we're giving it a negative value. Yeah. And so, uh, and he calls this the invisibility of nature. So if we want to solve the problem, we have to break the junk food cycle 
and restore, make nature visible in the systems that we, that we use to measure our success. And if you do that, those two things, you can then create a better food system. But you have to be able to, you have to be prepared to make fundamental interventions in the free market to do those two things. And I and I, I I love that, and I think the the fact that we we don't value nature, and therefore we don't charge for the destruction of it. You know, we don't ask people to pay for the destruction of it that that, that is being caused, and therefore reflect it in uh, the taxes or however we choose best to reflect it. That that we going to continue to destroy it until at such a point that it's no longer sustainable and we're really at the tipping point now aren't we in the context of what can our what can our planet actually um accommodate in the future in the context of global warming yes i mean and, and actually the way we eat is imperiling the way we eat so because it has these environmental harms actually the food system climate change is the biggest risk to the food system and the food system is causing climate change. So I mean, having said that, I am more optimistic on nature than I am at the moment on health because I think the invisibility of nature has now been accepted. You know, mm. So I think people now accept that that is how the system is working. And as I said before, that is the prerequisite to any essential any effective action so now we're seeing not only uh regulation to stop people destroying nature you're seeing people paying for the rest states paying for the restoration of nature the government in this country has set up an independent body to uh to hold it to account both on biodiversity and nature so we're kind of edging in the right direction Whereas do you think we're recognizing it though in the context of the food system and big agriculture, because I think it feels to me like we're just um, dipping our toe in the water of what needs to be done, rather than jumping straight in and dealing with the with the real problems with with I, big ag agriculture. I think that the pro I think we are dipping our toe into the solution. So in this country, for example, we are about. Uh, to completely change the way that what we pay farmers to do. So we pay farmers about 3.5 billion pounds a year. Historically, that has been to maintain food production. We're about to pay them to restore nature. So we're moving in the right direction. The one area where the states are very frightened of acting is on meat. So people, people think, you know, there's a lot of culture wars about meat and people think it is about methane if they think it is a bad thing. But actually, meat just takes up too much land. 85% of the land that's used to feed us is uh, used to, to, to either grow food to feed meat or to rear animals. And that is, we just need some of that land back to use to restore nature, to restore biodiversity. While the, the, the animals that we eat at any one time weigh 20 times as much as all wild animals and twice as much as we do. So that is an area where the government isn't acting. And I think government action is quite hard. But on the other stuff, I do think very slowly, as you say, dipping the toe in the water. But in terms of is it recognised that that is the problem? I think it now is recognised that that is the problem. Whereas it is not recognised that the problem with diet-related ill health is the junk food cycle. There are too many people who think it's about some kind of 
crazy massive loss of willpower at a, a national level but that is the that is the current paradigm that is the way people understand the system it's kind of goes back to your analogy with mental health isn't it where often people think mental health is is caused by the individual but it but it's a system issue so you know when we talk about brain health we talk about the fact that your your the organ of your brain is in trouble um it's a very different language because we look at how your brain is responding so we look at the organ rather than the individual and then we look at the system aspects that's causing that organ to be in trouble and if if you think about it all of our organs from a health perspective are starting to be in in trouble because of the food that we're consuming but also how the food is given to us and how it's presented to us and how it is advertised to us and how we are swayed by the uh, marketing that is done and how we are swayed by the ingredients that are put put in there, like you said earlier, to trigger addictive tendencies that cause us to eat more and more of foods that actually don't provide the nutritional value that we need in order to to sustain ourselves and also to, to manage our organs, including our liver, our heart, our brain, um, our, our skin, all of the different organs that, that, that form part of us as a, as a whole. Exactly. And here's, here's the parallel again. So the, the, the modern food system is amazing. It's incredible. It's a miracle in many ways. It, it provides fresh fruit and veg all through the year, uh, a kind of, a kind of f- freedom of choice that our grandparents would be amazed by. It's much safer. It's much rarer to die of food poisoning. Uh, and it brings a lot of our restaurants bring a lot of pleasure. You know, it's, it's, it's in many ways a miracle. And the, the parallel to mental health is this, right? So this is an incredible thing. This uh, helps me. It pays for everything. I can get around London with it. I can do all mm-hmm. sorts of just like really amazing things with this. But there are also people who are using it to hack into my brain response mechanisms to addict me to it and to, uh, de- to, to, to mess with the pleasure pain cycle yeah. uh, in my brain. It's exactly the same thing. So, and and, and what you, it's very difficult to work out how you, because you don't want, you know, you don't want food to become, you know, food is one of the great sources of joy. Cooking is one of the great uh the great forms of human creativity so you and you connection know, and, as well and, 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 and these things connected. these things do as my son <laughs> these things do incredible incredible things but but they also people are using them to make an awful lot of money by hacking into very pre almost pre as well pre, yes prehistoric prehistoric uh feedback loops that that govern our behavior so, so what do you think is stopping um, the government from taking the key action points that you recommended in, in both in Ravenous and in, in the National Food Strategy, which is this, you know, really introducing the restricting the promotion and advertising of junk food, um, particularly towards children. And I think any parent would be absolutely grateful for that to happen because of the challenges that, you know, we, you know, I personally have, and I know thousands, millions of parents around the globe do, it is, you know, marketing really unhealthy, addictive foods containing vast quantities of sugar or sweetener, which is just, just as addictive and, ha- uh, you know, and hacks your uh, pleasure centers in your brain, um, to, to 
make our children want to drink soda or or, or fizzy drinks uh, or eat lots of sweets and uh, and chocolate and and junk food. Well, so um, you know, to, to, the, the, there are there are some areas where the government has acted mm-hmm. uh, on food poverty. They took up my recommendation to basically extend free school meals. Uh, campaign for by Marcus Rashford, which is another story we can talk about if you want, but uh, <laughs> to extend free school meals. But it was footballer intervention, though, that, you know, he cre- create, Marcus Rashford had to create a fairly a media storm. Yep, sometimes um, you need a bit of pressure to get things uh, over the uh, line. And it, you know, it's sad, isn't it, that it takes that, yeah. and, you know, if that's the way we have to play the game. Um, the, 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 know, uh, that is sad, but that is the game. And. <laughs> That is electoral politics, which is that politicians will start off wanting to make the world a better place, but they are buffeted by what they perceive of as electoral threats and pressures and opportunities. And that is why, actually, to your question, I think they've got this wrong. So I think that actually people think of, oh, you know, the British don't like the nanny state, whatever that means. They don't like the government intervening. And in some cases, and we did a lot of focus groups and quantitative research on our recommendations, in some cases they are right. So, for example, on meat, uh, the government are right to think that it would be very hard electorally to intervene in any significant way to try and get people to reduce the amount of meat they eat because we as a nation, there's a certain cultural element to meat eating that sits very close to our sense of ourselves as a nation. And when we did focus groups and quantitative research on meat, it became very heated very quickly. But as you alluded to, uh, on health, people are actually fed up. People are fed up with their children being bombarded by adverts. People are fed up of having to live in this, we call it a food swamp uh, of, of bad food. A toxic food swamp as well. Yeah, and they, and they want government intervention. And I think the reason that this government has found it so difficult to intervene is that there is an ideological wing to the kind of libertarian right. And that is backed up by a misconceived view that the Red Wall doesn't like this kind of stuff, whereas the Red Wall, along with everyone else, is desperate for the government to act. And actually, it's one of the reasons I think, you know, governments have, I think at the moment that culture war is so strong that it'll be interesting to see what Labour put in this manifesto about it because they also will be terrified of doing anything that they think, rightly or wrongly, will upset the, the red wall. And the tartan wall, as we now know, learn, the, the seats yeah. in Scotland they want to win. And I think it's, you know, for me personally as a parent, and obviously you're a parent yourself, is that children are now predicted to have a lower life expectancy than their parents, certainly in the States because of the obesity epidemic and the chronic health epidemic. Yeah, and, and, and so we are, you know, if we want to do if you want to say it uh, very bluntly, we are killing our children through yeah, the it, through the policies that and, and the advertising that is out there that's causing them to consume uh, you know because they don't have willpower children, you know, it, it they are influenced by the environment around us as we all are. Um, and it and it's causing huge issues of obesity in children that we would never have seen, uh, and addictions in children, and mental health crises in children that were you know were never present previously, be, because we are hacking uh, our brains and uh, and our bodies with with toxins. Yes, and I think that I mean it is already the case amongst the poorest in this country. It is the case yeah. that they live the 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 the, the 
people who live in the 10% least affluent postcodes are living less long now than they did in 2020. But I think that, you know, I think there are two things that need to go on. This is actually a bit like your work as well. So first of all, you have to recognize that we're living in a tough environment. Uh, so we have to recognize that and we have to, as a nation, try and improve that environment. But then individually, we have to recognize that we're living in a desert and we have to learn desert craft. And we have to try and teach our children how that, you know, because that environment is not going to change anytime soon, we have to then give our children the tools to survive in it. And I think it is, you know, recognizing that you are living in a, diff in a difficult system, but at the same time, not giving up, you know, because mm. you still have to survive. So, you know, uh, you know, if I think about the way to deal with that, with children it's first of all about not creating that environment inside the house so making the it more, a safe the more you can just get the more you can get rid of i mean i people are shocked when i say this but uh, even breakfast breakfast cereals are kind of for me totemic of the problem that we eat you know what we eat for breakfast has basically become pudding uh i went to the i went to one of the big um breakfast manufacturers annual annual senior management meeting the other day, and they said our oh, breakfast cereals are fine and I show them sugar. Well, I should. They they were actually pretty good. They're pretty good on that. Well, even if they're not full of sugar, they're simple simple carbs, which is in essence eating sugar anyway. Yeah. But, but I also I also showed them their product development pipeline because I got it off the internet. What what had just been released, and what was coming out, and it was all their traditional cereal with chocolate bits in it. Their traditional cereal with chocolate bits and sugar in it. So the first thing is. To, as far as possible in your house, try not, just don't have that stuff in there. Don't have that old process stuff in there. Yeah. And it can be really tricky, particularly if you are not, I'm very, very lucky. And again, you know, in terms of um, desert skills, because I was a chef, I can cook fast. And that means I could combine a busy life with being able to cook for my family. It's not easy, but that is the first thing that you can do for your children. And you know, and, and actually, recently, I used to hate the idea, but I recently come started uh, experimenting with my children with the boxes that you cook from scratch. Because okay. they are a really good way. I, I, I bought it as an experiment. And, and my there's lots of different companies out there, aren't there? That lots of different so. companies, yeah. HelloFresh, Gusto, Mindful yeah. Chef. There are loads yeah. of them. Uh, but my daughter, I, I bought this thing and I said to Dory, who's 11, do you want to cook us dinner? She said, yeah. I said, well, let me do it with you. And she got the card and she said, no, I don't need help. And she cooked all five of us, six, including someone staying with us, this amazing, delicious dinner. It was three quid a head, which is more expensive than, you know, it would be cooking from scratch, but less expensive than Deliveroo. And yeah. so I think that is a way. But getting your home, getting the stuff out of your home. And then the second thing I would say for families is making sure, I'm sure you do this with, mental health as well uh making sure that it doesn't become a battleground realizing that it's not easy realizing that as your kids get older your children get older they, they go they almost always go through a restrictive period of restrictive eating that's again a genetic inheritance an evolutionary inheritance and just making that dinner table don't cook don't you know you're not a restaurant don't offer everyone a different thing <laughs> there's one thing and that's the thing 
But if they're not eating it, no child with, who hasn't had an eating disorder has ever starved themselves, you know. Uh, so don't don't become a restaurant, serve everyone a different thing. Do you know, I really agree with that, you know, with my daughter, obviously Lily, she's only four, but even this evening, I don't like it, I don't want to eat it. And we were like, well, well, that's fine, you can go hungry. <laughs> um, because they're not, you know, they can go hungry for a day where it's actually good good to have a, a mini fast obviously depending on your health conditions but and we're designed to be able to go without food generally um and actually she decided she was going to eat all of her food and she did eat all of her food and um a, a, and got a special sticker <laughs> sticker for it but she had to process that through her mind that there was no other alternative um, if you give them sugar and you know kids as most of us will will always prefer chips. You know, it's just like, so it's about how you get them trying other things. You know, of course, yeah. we're genetically pre predisposed to love stuff that is high in fat and sugar and refined carbs. Yeah, because that's um, how we survived. That's how we genetically the, the other thing that is The other thing that's really gratifying, our middle son went through a long phase of very careful eating. And I think like a lot of children, people listen to this will know this, you know, he really didn't like things that are mixed, which is quite normal. They all had to be separate. If like yeah. one thing was touching another thing, he wouldn't eat it. Yeah. Uh, and that is because people, children are taught to be careful even from an evolutionary standpoint when they leave the home because you don't want them trying a berry that they haven't seen you eat. That would be bad because you don't want them to put the wrong thing in their mouth. Yeah. But that feeling of just, you know, there's, there's always been stuff he can eat on the table, but it's never been, you know, and he's, he's been allowed to pick it out and we don't make a fuss of it. We don't make it a battle. And recently, he's just started opening up his eating again. And he's just like, without really saying anything, it's such an exciting moment when they go through, when they come out the other side of that restrictive area. So as much as you shouldn't beat yourself up, if your child, if it's if your child, you're struggling to get your child to eat the right right things, you should really enjoy it when they do. Do you know what I, I think it's so important? And you know, I have a lot of like little background uh, tricks up my sleeve, you know, from an academy perspective. But one of the things that's really worked is be, becoming a food explorer. So creating a way in which you reward children for trying new foods uh, yeah. and making it fun for them so that they they feel like they're it's an adventure <laughs> because Absolutely. it is an adventure isn't uh, it uh, all, all, all that stuff if if children grow stuff they're much more likely to eat it if they've grown it themselves putting veg we always when they were younger used to put veg on the table before the main things so they're always carrot sticks bit of broccoli yeah when they're hungry so they eat them uh you know branding things so you know our children didn't like porridge, but they did like Daddy's delicious porridge, which was, for mysterious and unexpected reasons, the best porridge in the world. You know, <laughs> um, uh, broccoli. Uh, they originally didn't like it, but then the broccoli became trees, and there was always like, "What's in this bit of broccoli?" There's a little, there's a little dog in the tree. Do you want to eat the dog? And obviously, children being bloodthirsty creatures would do that. So there's all of that because it's making it fun, making exploring yeah. fun. And, and again, we know the science shows that if you eat something. A few times you will eventually and, and your body realizes that it's not going to hurt you you will you will like the flavor of it more yeah and you can't give up on the first go can you no absolutely not so what so what advice um because obviously we're coming to the end of of the show now what advice would you give to um let's take us sort of we've talked about parenting what what, what would your advice be 
to anybody that is struggling personally. We'll start there with the personal struggles as an adult um, to to move away from junk food. What would you your advice be there? Well, so I think you know in terms of your own eating, I've struggled my weight. My weight's gone up and down all my life. It goes from kind of the low end of a beast to the top end of what is defined as um, as a uh, healthy weight. And the thing that I've, for both my mental health, how I feel, and also my physical health, there are two things that I have found have been incredibly helpful. And this is born out scientific. The first is, think about your appetite is what, makes you eat too much mm -hmm. so don't think about restricting what you eat think about what are the things that you eat that don't make you hungry and you will generally find that involves eating a lot of fibrous vegetables not eating refined carbohydrates not eating in particular uh fatty starchy sugary things which you find delicious and you find it very hard to stop eating so think about managing your appetite and then the second side of that is, if you are eating those vegetables, if you're not eating that sugar, if you're not eating you know, all that sugary, fatty stuff, even if you are still a bit overweight, you will be so much healthier and you will feel mentally so much better that that in itself is, a, is, is fantastic. And then the final thing I'd say is that, and we go through why in the book, but exercise is not very good at making you lose weight for, no. because you're, for, for reason, your body fights against it and it, it reduces the amount of energy you expend elsewhere. But it is the most, the best thing you can do for your health. So um, if you exercise and you don't lose weight, don't give up because if you are uh, slightly, uh, weigh slightly more than you would like, but you're eating that healthy food and you're exercising, mentally and physically you will be healthier than most people who uh to our slightly distorted western eye look a more reasonable weight and, and finally that's great advice for for individuals what would you say to businesses um who who i you know we didn't really touch on this but what advice would you give to to businesses to support the changing of the food system what could what could well, so I, I think that um that it depends on on what they are for any business i think the health of the employees of the business should be the business of the business mm -hmm. so we now have more people out of the workforce with ill health than ever before it is the single thing that is holding back our productivity we need to think that it is okay in that environment we don't have to be embarrassed to talk about health to support people with their mental health and their physical health to serve good food uh and, and businesses if we want to be a productive nation again businesses should make that their business they shouldn't be embarrassed by it and then the, the for food businesses i think there is actually in terms of junk food businesses there is little that they can do but i they need to stop telling they need to stop lobbying government quite so vociferously not to change anything and just look in, into the you know deep into their souls and think maybe i'll just keep quiet at least i won't fight against regulation i'll just keep quiet mm -hmm. great advice henry I'd, i've absolutely loved talking to you and um and learning so much about yourself personally and also 
um, the great insights that you've provided on your book, Ravenous, which I do encourage people to read because it is very digestible um, uh, and, and delicious, as I said. <laughs> uh, our, in our, our indexer, so there's a whole thing called indexing and like indexes these, and if you, I'll never read an index again. If you read our index, it's like an amazing kind of acid trip of the book. Very <laughs> funny, the index. And the, the indexer said, said for the first time ever, because the indexes don't really normally, you know, get into the books, but he sat, sat up in bed every night reading his wife bits of the book. And I hope that this book is the kind of thing that you want to, you want to constantly want to tell the person in the room, God, did you know that? God, did you know that? That's the idea and that you should feel, you should feel that you kind of are equipped to understand the way the world works uh, a bit better afterwards and you have been entertained in the meantime. And how can people get hold of you and learn more about what you do, get involved in your initiatives and all of your charitable work that you're doing to really change well, uh, the conversation and the education around uh, the food system? I'm on Twitter, at henrydimbleby.com. No, at henrydimbleby, not .com, it's Twitter. And I have a website, which you pointed out, I have not yet updated to include the book, but the website is henrydimbleby.com. You, you can contact me on that as well directly or on, or on Twitter. Yeah, so do make sure you get hold of Henry through his website and also through Twitter and, uh, and look out for his posts on Twitter and make sure you order his book, Ravenous, which um, is a, just, you know, as I read, I didn't read all of the statistics I'd written down here. It's just so shocking that we really uh, do have the power as a nation, I think, to make significant change, um, both individually and collectively. Um, to, to fix the food system. So, Henry, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. And remember, everyone, this show is all about brain health, unchaining your pain. You are not starved with the brain you have. You have the power to make it better, including the power to un your, unchain your pain in the context of the food system. And Henry has kind kindly been here to show us how. Thank you, Henry. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to like and share this episode and leave a review on my website or on Apple Podcasts. If you're looking for opportunities to optimise your brain health or unchain your pain from a past trauma, make sure you visit my website www.ruthmaryallen.com and use the code PODCAST10 at checkout to get 10% off all programs. And always remember, you are not stuck with the brain you have. You have the power to make it better. You have the power to unchain your pain and optimize your brain power and performance so that you can win back energy and time doing what you love. <laughs>